Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 39 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter two of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, titled On Board the Dawn Treader. And if you'll remember from last time, Lewis opens us up into this story in a way that he has done similarly uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Prince Caspian, where we begin in a rather prosaic or mundane environment, uh, and then we are suddenly summoned into this glorious and wondrous world of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, the children are sent out into the country, and Lucy discovers this wardrobe in the spare room and stumbles her way into Narnia for the first time. And then in Prince Caspian, of course, all four of the Pevensies are on a train station, and they are summoned at once into Narnia, and they discover later it was Caspian's blowing of Susan's horn that summons them there. Now, in Chapter 1, Edmund and Lucy are staying with their cousin Eustace Scrub, and they see this beautiful portrait on the wall of the Dawn Treader, and uh, suddenly, somehow, inexplicably, through deeper magic, all three of them are washed into the painting and are picked up by Caspian into the Dawn Treader, and here we go. The High Seas Adventure Tale begins. So now in Chapter 2, we are on board the Dawn, Tre- the Dawn Treader, and this is where Lewis takes an occasion for some exposition of the plot. We discover that Caspian is king. It's been three years since the last time Edmund and Lucy were in Narnia. So uh, one year has passed for Edmund and Lucy, but it's been three years in Narnia. So just like in Prince Caspian, it's been 1,300 years in Narnia for the one year in England. Now it's three years. Uh, this is time enough for Prince Caspian to have aged and come into his own reign as King Caspian. Uh, in Lewis's notes, he indicates that Caspian is now 16. He was 13 in Prince Caspian. He's now 16. Um, and so he is maturing into his kingdom, into his reign as the king. Uh, we discover the captain of the ship's name is Lord Drinian, and that in his absence, King Caspian has uh, left behind Trumpkin, the dwarf from Prince Caspian, to serve as regent on his behalf as he's away, sailing the high seas. And in uh, particular, Edmund and Lucy are asking Caspian why he's taken to the sea. Um, we, we learn from Caspian that everything is well at home. Uh, he's actually somewhat offended. Edmund asks if everything's going well, and Caspian says, you don't suppose I'd have left my kingdom and put to sea unless all was well. And so we find out that in those three years of Caspian's reign, he has brought about peace for the kingdom. There's no trouble between the dwarfs and the telmarines that remained, the talking beasts and the fawns and so on. There have been some skirmishes with some giants and so on, but uh, everything has been established and there is uh, a Pax Narnia. There's a peace in Narnia. And so Caspian takes his time to go to the sea. And he tells Edmund, when Edmund asks where, where they're headed, he tells him a bit of the backstory that serves to provide some exposition for the plot of this story. Caspian says, well, that's a rather long story. Perhaps you remember that when I was a child, my usurping uncle, Miraz, got rid of seven friends of my father's who might have taken my part. By sending them off to explore the unknown eastern seas beyond the Lone Islands. Yes, said Lucy, and none of them ever came back. Right, 
Well, on my coronation day, with Aslan's approval, I swore an oath that if once I established peace in Narnia, I would sail east myself for a year and a day to find my father's friends or to learn of their deaths and avenge them if I could. These were their names, the Lord Revillian, the Lord Burn, the Lord Argaz, the Lord Mavramorn, the Lord Octesian, the Lord Restamar, and oh, that other one who's so hard to remember. The Lord Roop, sire, said Drinian. Roop, Roop, of course, said Caspian. So there's our uh, story for now, that the voyage of the Dawn Treader is one sailing east to go find these seven missing lords of Narnia. And there's a hyperlink straight back to Prince Caspian. If you'll remember when Prince Caspian was being tutored by Dr. Cornelius, we got this indication of seven missing lords. Uh, Dr. Cornelius is speaking to Prince Caspian about Miraz. And he says, back in Prince Caspian, he says, quote, Finally, he persuaded the seven noble lords, who alone among all the Telmarines did not fear the sea, to sail away and look for new lands beyond the Eastern Ocean. And as he intended, they never came back. So that's a, a bit of foreshadowing or foregrounding that Lewis does in Prince Caspian that he returns to as the main plot for this story, that Miraz sends out these seven lords intentionally uh, into a, a sort of exile so that they might, come to, they might not come to Caspian's defense once Miraz's usurpation is uh, maturing and, on its, and complete. And so now uh, Prince Caspian's become king. He's established peace in Narnia. And so he pledges to himself this quest of a year and a day to sail uh, the eastern sea of Narnia to look for these seven uh, missing lords and so they go on this expedition to find the missing lords, but also just to explore the Lone Islands. And he gives the name of these seven lords. Interestingly enough, too, that the timeline of the quest is uh, one that has curious roots. Uh, Devin Brown mentions this, how Lewis's uh, lifelong fascination with medieval literature, uh, particularly the Arthurian romances. Uh, in fact, um, Lewis taught most of his life at Oxford, but eventually, later in his life, he took up a professorship at Cambridge, um, and he was actually the chair of a department that they created for Lewis specifically called Medieval and Renaissance Literature. Uh, Lewis was an expert in medieval literature and in Renaissance literature. So for him to uh, draw on the Arthurian stories throughout is certainly something that he would be overjoyed to do, to, to tag his stories to these uh, these glorious medieval ones. Um, but also it creates the medieval mood of this particular story. Like Prince Caspian, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is going to have a very medieval feel. We have a king, we have a ship that is not a steamship. Uh, and Eustace uh, will lament that fact that this ship has none of the modern luxuries of um, 20th century sailing that this is an old-fashioned ship with a dragon prow, uh, and it's helmed by a king, and it has all of the trappings of a high quest. And so uh, one of many uh, ways in which Lewis will create this medieval atmosphere is by hearkening back to uh, these medieval stories that he loved so much. And in this particular moment, Devin Brown mentions that 
the timeline of a year and a day is a common motif in the Arthurian stories. Uh, in fact, when Sir Gawain uh, declares his intention to go on a grail quest, he's going to take a quest to go find the Holy Grail. Uh, he says it's a quest that will last a year and a day. And so there's a bit of this Arthurian chivalric nobility to King Caspian, uh, not just in the way that he conducts himself and the way in which he has reigned as a king, but also in these little textual details that Lewis includes uh, that um, connect backwards to the King Arthur stories. And so we have the seven lords and they're missing and King Caspian's off on a quest to find them. They're sailing east, hence the name of the ship, the Dawn Treader. And uh, we discover that there are two quests. The one that, Lord Ca that King Caspian has established to find the lords that are missing. But then there's also a higher quest that Reepicheep is on. And it's that higher quest uh, that provides the spiritual content of the, of the voyage that is running in parallel with the um, sort of cultural and political element of the quest to go find these seven lords of Narnia. So Reepicheep says that as we're sailing east, why should we not come to the very eastern end of the world? And what might we find there? I expect to find Aslan's own country. It is always from the east across the sea that the great lion comes to us. And so what Lewis does here, here is he creates a single quest, a single journey that has two different layers of meaning. That there is the literal layer of the quest, the literal raison d'etre, the reason the quest is occurring, which is Caspian's attempt to find the lords. But then mapped on top of that is a transcendent or metaphysical layer of meaning that this is a spiritual quest as well, that in sailing to the east, Reepicheep says there might be a higher hope as well, and that is to discover uh, the great lion himself, to, to arrive at Aslan's country, which is this symbol, uh, this a glorious symbol for the realm of heaven, the realm of God, the place from which the great lion always comes, uh, which is always from the east across the sea. And the eastern orientation of it, of course, is looking toward the dawn, looking toward uh, the direction of the light, and it's across the sea. It's on the other side of this great chasm between the physical realm and the metaphysical realm. And at the end of the book, when they arrive, um, Lewis provides so many beautiful uh, images to convey arriving at Aslan's country. And, and in many ways, those two layers of meaning operate throughout all seven books, that the land of Narnia is a real land that has... Uh, geographical coordinates, and it has hills and valleys and streams and so forth. But it's also this land that evokes spiritual realities, that Aslan is at once a lion that can be touched, that can be heard, but he is also uh, this figure of Christ who, uh, who reigns over all of the land. And Lewis will flirt often with the distinctions, but also the union between these two different layers of meaning. Uh, at a later point, uh, he'll tell Lucy that in our world, in the human world, he goes by another name, and we must learn to know him by that name. And so there's a way in which Aslan is both a lion of Narnia, the lion of Narnia, but he is also Christ. And so there's a way in which Peter's victories as a knight are our victories as sons of Adam, as human beings. Edmund's betrayal is our betrayal. 
Eustace's modern snobbishness is our modern snobbishness. And so this journey that they're on in the Dawn Treader represents the crossing over of that border, the, the crossing of that boundary from the physical realm into the metaphysical realm, which is the journey of life that you and I inhabit a physical realm, breathing air, eating food, taking steps, uh, seeing the grass and seeing the horizon and interacting with our family and our friends. Uh, that we have a very physical world that we inhabit, but that physical world is a journey toward a metaphysical world. And of course, if you take Pilgrim's Progress, the end of that story where Christian crosses the river into the celestial city as another great image of this uh, idea, that our lives in this physical world are journeying toward across the waters the, toward the metaphysical realm of God, that that's what life and death and life everlasting are. These are things that John Bunyan talks about, John Donne has represented, that many great poets and artists throughout the centuries have indicated this life that you and I are, are in as a voyage, treading the dawn, moving toward the east, moving toward the hope of our great glory as we cross the waters from our world into the world hereafter. And so this moment with Reepicheep opens up a reading of the story where, yes, we are on an adventure, uh, a great adventure, sailing the Eastern Seas, looking for these lost lords of Narnia. Absolutely. But as true, but in a more deeper fashion, in a deeper fashion, is this greater quest that we are also embarking on, which is a quest toward Aslan's country, a quest toward the great and glorious hope. And so we read Caspian and Reepicheep as two figures who are linked in this quest, that both of them embody uh, the two different layers of meaning for this great journey. Uh, and so that longing for Aslan's country is suggested through Reepicheep's character, that here is this little mouse who with all of his heart, his stout heartedness and his valiant nobility is yearning for and longing for that which his heart desires most, uh, which is to be with Aslan, to, to have journeyed toward the eastern end of the world and beyond. And so this isn't a despairing sort of uh, desire to just sail beyond the world. Um, it's a right yearning that we might do everything we must do in this world so that we, at the end of our voyage, uh, journey across the river into uh, the land beyond. And so he speaks of this fairy, this uh, song that he had been uh, sung to by a dryad, a dryad in his youth that speaks to this, uh, this yearning for the utter east. And he says, I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. And this idea of a spell is one that Lewis will return to when, uh, when Lucy reads from the great book of spells. Uh, and this is something that Malcolm Geith has commented on as well. When we get to that scene with Lucy um, and the duffel buds and everything, we'll get to this idea of a spell for the refreshment of the soul and so on. Uh, but even now, there's a spell that has entranced Reepicheep with this longing and this aching for Aslan's country, the land beyond our land. 
And it's important that he says, I do not know what it means, because it's something that cannot be reduced to mere facts. This is Eustace's problem. He thinks everything that's true can be reduced down to mere facts. Uh, but Repetit knows that, that there is truth that transcends the world of ships and waters, the world of lands and seas. There's a truth that goes beyond all of this. And of course, I don't know what it means because it's something that's bigger and broader and deeper and more glorious than my mere human mortal mind can contain. But the spell of it is something that resonates deeply within me. This is why in mere Christianity, in mere Christianity, Lewis has that famous phrase, uh, passage where he says, if I find in myself, in myself, desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The Repetit recognizes he was made for another world. And he doesn't know what that world means, but he just knows that he desires it above all things. The spell of it has been on me all my life. And so this is a great description of one of Lewis's favorite concepts that he treats in mere Christianity, surprised by joy, probably most thoroughly. Uh, he has references to it in The Problem of Pain. And this is the idea of sinsucht, this German word that Lewis trafficked in constantly in his writing, uh, which is essentially this inconsolable longing. It, it's this yearning that the heart has for that which it desires most, even though it can't quite grasp or define or articulate what it is. And this is something that Lewis will return to later in this book, but also in The Last Battle. Now, let me read you this section from Devin Brown's commentary on, on the Dawn Treader. Devin Brown says this, readers are given two further windows into this longing for the land beyond the world's end. In The Last Battle, Jewel, the unicorn, will reach the borders of this region with the others and will declare, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. For a second window, Brown says, we might look to Lucy's words on the next to last page of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. After being told that she and Edmund will never return to Narnia, Lucy will sob, quote, it isn't Narnia, you know, it's you suggesting that at the root of the children's longing for Narnia and in Repacheep's case for Aslan's country is a longing for Aslan himself, close quote. So in those two accounts, Brown gives us uh, two different moments in Narnia where Lewis is dealing with this intense feeling of sinsucht, of the inconsolable ache for the land beyond our land. And in the last battle, he connects it to Jewel entering into the new Narnia further up and further in where he says, ah, this is it. This is what my heart has been longing for all my life. And everything we loved in the old world, we loved because it somehow was a glimpse into this world. We loved it because it somehow revealed something about the new and ultimate Narnia. And so that's what our hearts are wanting is not this world only. It's what this world reminds us of about the ultimate world to come. It's the way in which these rays of sunlight are drawing us back to the source of the sun itself. And then more immediately, Brown's point about the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Lucy says, when she's aching for over the 
reality that she'll never come back to Narnia this way. Uh, she says, well, isn't Narnia that I'm in love with? It's, it isn't Narnia that I'm desiring most. It's Aslan. And so in that way, heaven might be that land beyond our land that we are longing for and aching for, and that every pleasure in this world is a pleasure because it speaks of that world. It speaks of heaven. It's an echo of Eden. It reminds us of what we were meant for, but also more importantly than that, it might be not heaven that we're after, but Christ. It's not Narnia, you know, it's you, Aslan. And so it's worthy to, it's worth pausing and reflecting on Repacheep's uh, entrancement there with the land beyond our land, that he does not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on him all his life. And so as the chapter goes forward, we get more details from Caspian that they are, they have been 30 days at sea. We hear from him on different islands that they've touched down on and different uh, smaller adventures that they've had that will not factor into this story. They're 400 leagues away from Narnia, about 1,200 miles. Um, he gives Lucy her cordial back that she says that she'd love to uh, provide use to some of it to help him with his seasickness. And so just like in Prince Caspian, when Caspian has Susan's horn and blows it and gives it back to Susan, now he has Lucy's cordial and gives it back to her. Um, but near the end of the chapter, we, we see Eustace a little bit more clearly, um, and we discover uh, this sharp contrast that Lewis is going to draw between, uh, most particularly between Repacheep and Eustace. Broadly, you could say there's a contrast between Eustace and all of the other Narnians, uh, but the sharpness of the contrast will be drawn between those two characters primarily, Repacheep and Eustace. That Repacheep uh, embodies this old world medieval ideal, this chivalric ethic, that there is a code of conduct, there's the Tao that we live by, uh, that Lewis articulates more of in the abolition of man, where he talks about there's this strict moral code that binds the heart of man. Uh, and Ribachib very much embodies that ethic. He is concerned with majesty and nobility. He is submissive before the rules of hierarchy and authority. He recognizes the dignity of kingship, of rule, of good rule. He is interested in beauty and honor. Uh, and so Ribachib is going to uh, be our our greatest character for seeing those ideals in action. Eustace uh, will serve as, a, as an excellent foil to all those things because Eustace is the embodiment of modernist ideologies, that he is our post-enlightenment material humanist uh, and is being educated that way. He's being parented that way. And of course, his own voluntary actions are in accordance with those modern assumptions that everything is merely a matter of cold rationality and cold reason. Everything that is true is merely physical. Uh, scientific understandings of things are the ultimate understandings of things. There's no room for magic and glory and transcendence. There's merely calculation and scientific experimentation and uh, contractual obligations and so forth. There's nothing like friendship or duty or loyalty. Uh, his is a world that has been neutered of those virtues. Um, they, Eustace is a man without a chest, to use Lewis's image from the abolition of man. Eustace uh, is all head or all belly, but he has no chest to bridge the two. 
And so uh, at the end of the chapter, we're going to read from Eustace's diary directly so that we get his own words to describe his character and how he's responding to these experiences. But, but, but right before that, we get this beautiful description of the Dawn Treader itself. And I think Lewis's description of the ship is a way of preparing us to see the sharp differences between the medieval model and the modern model. Uh, where the Dawn Treader is not this airplane or this ocean liner or this modern invention of, of you know, hunks of metal and engines and efficiency and utilitarianism. It's a beautiful ship. And the glory of the ship is in its beauty. That it doesn't matter that it's less efficient than a motorboat. Uh, it matters that it is glorious. That beauty isn't always efficient. That's not the point of beauty. And Lewis is going to draw that note in his description of the Dawn Treader. He says this, she was only a little bit of a thing compared with one of our ships, or even with the cogs, dramans, carracks, and galleons, which Narnia had owned when Lucy and Edmund had reigned there under Peter as the high king. For nearly all navigation had died out in the reigns of Caspian's ancestors. When his uncle, Miraz, the usurper, had sent the seven lords to sea, they had had to buy a Galmian ship and man it with hired Galmian sailors. But now, Caspian had begun to teach the Narnians to be seafaring folk once more, and the Dawn Treader was the finest ship he had built yet. She was a beauty of her kind, a lady, as sailors say, her lines perfect, her colors pure, and every spar and rope and pin lovingly made. Eustace, of course, would be pleased with nothing and kept on boasting about liners and motorboats and aeroplanes and submarines. But the other two were delighted with the Dawn Treader. And when they returned aft to the cabin and supper and saw the whole western sky lit up with an immense crimson sunset and felt the quiver of the ship and tasted the salt on their lips, and thought of unknown lands on the eastern rim of the world, Lucy felt that she was almost too happy to speak. It's a beautiful passage. And there are several different parts to it that are worth mentioning. The first is how under Miraz's reign, he had done away with the navigation of the seas, that his people under that evil tyranny had lost the virtue of navigation. They had lost the means of determining true north. They had lost their bearings in a very serious sense, not just their navigational bearings as seafaring folk, but their moral bearings, that up was down, east was west, right was wrong, and there was no way of orienting themselves east to sail toward Aslan's country, that they had no way of navigating the world that they inhabited, which is essential for us as human creatures. We, we must have this moral compass within that uh, guides us in navigating the life that we live. Remember, if our life is a voyage from this land to the land beyond, we, we need to know which direction to go. We need to know if we're sailing east to Aslan country, which direction is east? And Uncle Miraz had lost that part of his education in virtue. Remember, under Miraz's tyranny, it was much like Eustace's life. It was a very modern and prosaic empire of mere facts and figures of oppressions and power. It was not a land of virtue and beauty. 
And so when Caspian becomes king, he had begun to teach the Narnians to be seafaring folk once more. And the Dawn Treader was the finest ship he had built. And so we see this restoration of the land back to these ancient virtues, back to these old ways, back to this medieval view of the world where there is right and wrong and uh, there is an order and a code to things. But then we zoom in from that overall um, point of history from Miraz to Caspian. We zoom in on the construction of the Dawn Treader herself. And he says she was a beauty of her kind, a lady, as sailors say, that every spar and rope and pen was lovingly made. This is Lewis's reverence for beauty and for glory and for majesty on full display. And these things are contrasted and pitted against Eustace's focus, these modernist focuses on efficiency and mere utility. That Eustace was complaining that, that the Dawn Treader was nothing like a submarine. The Dawn Treader was nothing like a motorboat. But that's okay. That's more than okay. In many ways, that's right. That there are certain things that are more useful. But there are also things that need to be simply beautiful despite their relative uselessness. Think of the Mona Lisa. What is it doing right now? What is its use? The Mona Lisa is not holding anything up. It's not providing food or shelter or water for anyone. It's hanging on a wall in a museum. And yet, how many of us would be willing to discard it simply because of its relative uselessness? No, it has something deeper than use. It has beauty. And beauty, in many ways, needs no uh, expedient. It needs no uh, utilitarian or efficiency argument. It just is beautiful. It reflects what is true and good. It draws us toward our full humanity. And so it's no accident that after this beautiful passage describing the Dawn Treader, uh, in, in these value systems of uh, the old world where uh, it's, it's, it's medieval, it is, uh, it's the way in which we might describe a cathedral, uh, that a cathedral uh, in many ways might be less efficient than some of our modern buildings, but who of us is going to stand in front of those great cathedrals of Europe and make an argument that they should somehow be made of concrete and central heating and air? <laughs> Um, who would bring fluorescent lighting into the nape of a cathedral? Um, there's something about stained glass and firelight and wide spaces and towering spires that draws something out of us that is uh, worthy of respect and admiration. And so right after this description of the Dawn Treader, Lewis turns us to Eustace, and we see uh, the full unveiling of his modernist assumptions Lewis says, Lewis says this, what Eustace thought had best be told in, well, Lewis, what Eustace thought had best be told in his own words. For when they all got their clothes back, dried next morning, he at once got out a little black notebook and a pencil and started to keep a diary. He always had this notebook with him and kept a record of his marks in it. For though he didn't care much about any subject for its own sake, he cared a great deal about marks and would even go to people and say, I got so much, what did you get? And so now, if the Dawn Treader is this symbol of, uh, of nobility and glory and honor, then Eustace's diary is a symbol of uh, the 
shrinking and shriveling of the soul in the modernist ideology. That Eustace, rather than communing and fellowshipping with the other sailors at sea, rather than uh, establishing friendship and loyalty and camaraderie, he's hunkered down by himself in his private quarters, writing in his own diary this morbidly introspective sense of journaling where he's just doubled over into his own self, uh, scribbling all of his resentments and his bitternesses into this private journal that we imagine he would be the only one who would read. And so this uh, reminds us of uh, this phrase of Augustine's that describes fallen man as incurvatus in se. The man is curved into the self. Uh, that Eustace's problem is that he is only concerned with his own self, his own uh, uh, opinions, his um, grievances, the way in which he's been victimized. Uh, he is just this little tyrant furiously scribbling in his little tyrant's notebook about the way in which he's been uh, mistreated by everyone else, that he's only got eyes for his own uh, inward self. And so he is in curvatus and say he's curved into the self here rather than opened out to the world. Uh, and so this journal of his, this diary is a great symbol of his modern hunching. Um, and it's helpful too to see this as another criticism of Lewis's against some of the problems of modern education that we've at Experiment House, the school that Eustace is attending, he doesn't care about the subjects for their own sake. He doesn't care about history. He doesn't care about music or literature. He cares about his grades. He cares about the marks that he received, so much so that that's what he writes in his private diary. He, keep, he keeps a record of his marks, his grades. Not, he doesn't take notes or like a commonplace book where he takes quotes from leaders of history or poems and snippets, and he doesn't respond to the great stories like Prince Caspian does. Remember when he's being educated by Dr. Cornelius, they uh, retreat up into the spires of the tower and they look out across the land of Narnia and Dr. Cornelius tells Prince Caspian the old tales of the talking beasts and of Aslan, of, of magic and of virtues like courage and loyalty and beauty and love. These are not the things that Eustace learns at Experiment House, right? He reads books, but they're all about foreign policies and they're weak on dragons. And so here we, you see again that the way he's being educated is impoverished, that he doesn't learn about the world and his place in it, and certainly not about the world beyond our world. He's no reapachieve. All he cares about is his grades, how I measure up. And so then we get his diary entry where it's just filled with all sorts of modern gripes against Caspian, against the Don Treader, against Reapacheep. <laughs> you know, they call Caspian a king. Uh, and I said I was a Republican, but he had to ask me what that meant. And so uh, the, uh, the diary itself is very revealing of what Lewis believes to be corrupt about Eustace's particular brand of modernism. Probably one of the most damning things for my money that he says is how they had given, Caspian had given Lucy her own private quarters that were quite spacious. And Eustace writes that the that Caspian says that's because she's a girl. And Eustace says, I tried to make him see what Alberta says, his mother, which is, look how he calls his own mother by her first name. 
I tried to make him see what Alberta says, that all that sort of thing is really lowering girls, that he was too dense. So Eustace's understanding of chivalry, of dignity, of uh, honor, of complementarianism between the sexes, that Eustace's vision of all those things is so skewed by his modernism as to think that treating women with no sense of special care or uh, with no sense of um, respect that is due them as women, the way that the chivalric code idealized uh, with the knights of the round table and the ladies of the court and so on, this courtly love ethic is completely lost for Eustace. And yet he thinks that he's right in having gotten rid of it. And so the chapter ends with this prank that Eustace pulls on Ripici, where Eustace has nothing that he can do against Caspian or Edmund or Lucy. So he turns to those who are smaller than him to demonize and lord his power over. So he takes Ripicheep by the tail and swirls him around. Ripicheep, as this model of the medieval code, um, ends up disciplining Eustace for that, that he draws him to a duel. Eustace is a pacifist, so he says he won't fight. He's more of a coward in this sense. And uh, Ripicheep takes the broad end of his sword and smacks Eustace with it. And Lewis says it functions like a birch rod. And so there's this way in which Eustace is being spanked. He's being disciplined for what he's done, which remember, Experiment House doesn't have corporal punishment. It's likely they don't have punishment of any kind. And so this might be the first time Eustace is ever spanked or corrected at all. And uh, that's a point that Devin Brown draws, that this might be Eustace's point, first point of being corrected. Um, and it's by Ripacheep one who is smaller than he is, and yet one who in many ways has the greater worldview. Remember that uh, Ripacheep and Eustace, these two characters provide the excellent contrast between the medieval world and the modern world. Just like, uh, just like Lewis had done in previous, um, previous novels that the white witch in her way and Miraz in his way and now Eustace in his way are all uh, different versions of the same sort of tyranny that is sinful at root. Here's Devin Brown again on that. In the first three chronicles, Lewis has given us a major tyrant in the White Witch, a minor tyrant in Miraz, and now in Eustace, a miniature tyrant. So a major tyrant, a minor tyrant, and a miniature tyrant. That's the White Witch, Miraz, and Eustace. Despite their different magnitudes, they share many similarities. A tyrant's only version of happiness, whether it be the witch, Miraz, or Eustace, requires that he or she take happiness away from others. Aslan wants the creatures of Narnia to be happy, to have fun, to be free, and to celebrate and enjoy life. His opponents want just the opposite. So remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the white witch's problem is of removing joy. She's the cosmic killjoy here uh, that she stumbles across, across the tea party and says, what's the meaning of all this waste and self-indulgence? And she turns them all to stone. She removes life. She removes fertility by creating a hundred years of winter in Narnia, but with no Christmas, no joy or celebration. Miraz does the same. Rather than allow Narnia be, to be this flourishing land of magic and talking beasts, he tries to neuter the land of Narnia of all magic. And now we have Eustace in miniature doing the same thing, where he is just rejecting this 
mythic sense of magic and transcendence and beauty and merely reducing everything down to facts and figures and marks and grades that he can scribble in his private little diary. So thank you for joining us in this episode. Uh, tune in next time as we look at chapter three of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader titled The Lone Islands.